I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me as always to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Sir Patrick and James Hunt. We'll be discussing the latest comic book movie and TV news, and then we'll explore one movie or television show in depth during our main discussion. This week we'll be casting our eyes over Richard Donner's 1978 film, Superman. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain a comics concept that, as a movie fan, I just don't understand. A, what are all of Superman's powers? Or B, <laughs> what what can't Superman do? I'm very confused. It I, saw, I saw one still of a comic where like Superman had produced a mini Superman. That was a that was a particular storyline in the Silver Age. You kind of have to discount anything where anything is done in a weird Silver Age story. I was wondering what like when he meets up with the Justice League, like he's yeah. going to the Flash. Oh, you can run fast. Me too. John Byrne, who makes a lot of controversial statements about comics and, and often isn't to be listened to, but also happens to have written and drawn a lot of really good comics, um, he has an argument about the whole Superman versus the Flash thing that I fully agree with, which is Superman is incredibly fast and so is the Flash. But because the Flash is only fast, then the Flash should be faster than Superman. And I'm inclined to agree with that. And Superman is a kind of of jack-of-all-trades type (laughs) character. Um, The other thing to bear in mind is that kind of the levels of his powers have changed. So when he was kind of rebooted in the 80s, they did tone down the extent of his powers and and made him less powerful. He used to tow planets around and they found that was probably a bit much... He's an enhanced human, essentially, is, is the kind of the basis of it. So that's why he has strength and invulnerability and can fly. Initially, it was just that he could jump really far, but that turned into... That's why you get leaping over tall buildings in a single bound. But that turned into flying gradually. And then he has heat vision x-ray vision microscopic vision telescopic vision so again just enhanced vision powers along with the heat vision and that's about it he has like the ice breath 
Oh yeah, is that, is that yeah the kind of the, the su- super cold breath? Yeah, that's been around for a while. But again, that's something you can kind of chalk down to his breath is stronger than other people's. So not in a halitosis kind of way. Although maybe he does have super halitosis. I don't know. So those are kind of the basics, and then you you know you might get other abilities sort of extrapolated from that basic power set. Uh, recently in the comics, they've given in they've given the new fifty two version of Superman a new power that's a kind of solar blast type thing but it's to do with him having absorbed a lot of solar energy. Again, you can draw a lot of stuff from the fact that he's basically a living solar battery. Depending on when you're reading, he could travel through time by flying really fast and, and in the same way that the Flash travels through time, basically. But yeah, so that's that's pretty much the, the basic Superman power set. But every so often, someone might come up with a bit of lateral thinking or a different angle on something to, to give him something else to do. He has those powers on Earth because... Because of the yellow sun. Because Krypton has a red sun and Earth has a yellow sun. And so it's the yellow sun that gives him his powers. Does he have powers that other Kryptonians wouldn't have if they were living on Earth? No, any, any any Kryptonian who's living on Earth would have his powers. Again, one of the things that some people do in stories is that Superman has been on Earth so long that he has absorbed so much solar energy that he's more powerful because he's been there charging up for longer, whereas Supergirl is younger and has been around for less long. One of the few things that I will give Man of Steel, and it's rare that you'll hear me give that film any credit, <laughs> the idea that um, Superman is able to control his powers better than Zod and the other Kryptonians, and you know that he he can sort of tune out his super hearing because he's been on Earth for longer. Mm. That was a quite nice idea that I don't think they made enough of. The fact that they have to wear those suits and he doesn't because he's been there for longer, I thought was quite good. Yeah, I like that. Sorry, I had to ask this question. I spent the past week (laughs) watching an entire season of Lois and Clark, the Superman movie, and Superman and the Mole Men. So you'll have seen different interpretations. Still all about Dean Cain. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know when the Yellow Sun thing first came in, but I think initially it was the case that it was more to do with gravity, like Earth having different gravity, that meant he had powers. That's what I thought it was, to be honest. I think Marlon Brando says that in the 78 movie. Oh, it could be. But then they really make a point out of showing the red yes, sun in do. the film. Yeah. But yeah, so the, the idea that all Kryptonians are powerful no matter where they are was, was eventually filtered out, and it's just they would have powers if they were on Earth. Right, well, I'm sure we'll get to a lot more Superman very shortly. But for now, let's move on to uh, our first section, which is the Comic Movie News section. And let's start off with not news but kind of the thing that everyone is talking about so we are recording this on sunday which means we have had about 48 hours in the presence of daredevil um have you guys been watching it what do you think so far yeah i'm two episodes in and i'm itching to get back to it frankly i had to watch superman instead of daredevil last night and i'm annoyed (laughs) by that Uh, actually, yeah. Even even though I love Superman and it's one of my favourite films, I was a bit annoyed at having to rewatch that instead of being able to watch more Daredevil. I've only watched the first episode so far, guys. I planned ahead. I watched it like a week ago, and I have spent spent Friday night. I watched four episodes. Saturday night, I watched four episodes, and tonight I plan to watch the rest. <laughs> it's a very good translation of the character. Going back to our original podcast on the 2003 movie, you can sort of see where they got things right because there's a lot that's similar in the TV mm. series, and yet. It's also a lot closer to the comics somehow. What do you think about the violence of the show? Because it is... So even in that first episode, he beats a guy within an inch of his life and hangs him from from a chain around his neck. In the second episode that I think you've seen, James, yeah, there is a moment where he tortures someone by putting a blade into a nerve just above his eye and there is no there is no daredevil hunting someone down and mercilessly throwing them in front of a train 
which I'm upset about, <laughs> you know. The the rule for Daredevil seems to be I will kick the shit out of people and put them in comas, but I won't kill them. Of the Marvel characters, I think Daredevil's one where you can get away with quite a high level of violence, particularly because he doesn't have any superpowers. So, like, he's... Uh, sorry, he does have superpowers, so he doesn't have super strength. So he's... You know, he's quite vulnerable in that sense, which means he's got to go on the offensive. So, you know, there are there are reasons I can see for why you'd make Daredevil quite violent. And aside that as well as the fact that Frank Miller's popular interpretation of the character also had that kind of level of grit to it. And and then the, the fight choreography is so good. I mean, the, that, the corridor fight sequence at the end of the second episode. It is amazing. Now, I, think, I genuinely think that is the best fight scene the, the entire MCU has produced. So it's six minutes long. It is one single camera take. There is an interview from the the fight choreographer saying that, yeah, we did it in one take. And they keep the camera in the corridor, even though the fight is kind of spewing out into the side rooms. And it's Mm -hmm. just incredible and nonstop. I said I'm writing uh, some annotations on Den of Geek and one of the points I made in those was that Stephen Denight, who was the showrunner, was the producer on Spartacus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's a show about gladiators, so obviously there's a lot of fighting in it, but they yeah. they found a way to make all the fights inventive, and importantly, they contained, like, actual acting. Like, they weren't sort of these kind of elaborate ballets. They were mm-hmm. sort of... You could, you know, get an indication of the character's mental state. And in, in Daredevil, you can feel the sort of fatigue in that fight and the way he sort of leans against things when he's got a spare second and, you know, the way he stumbles when he punches. Like, that that kind of thing. You don't see that in superhero films often. Like, they're more interested in making it look cool than making it look real. And I think that's why that fight scene works so well. I'm finding the pacing of the show very interesting so we talk that's a six minute scene but i was watching an episode maybe five or six in and the first scene of the episode i paused after the scene finished it was just a dialogue scene and it was six minutes and 45 seconds into the episode and i went Mm -hmm. wow we just spent that time listening to these two characters talk in a room and it's very deliberate about you know giving scenes time to breathe just letting characters sit down and talk so when you do get a six minute action scene it's the same length as an equivalent dialogue scene yeah. But also the pacing of how the show is revealing stuff to you. Like, any suggestion of how Matt's powers work isn't discussed until, like, episode five. We don't get to see the Kingpin for quite a few episodes. There is a, there is a lot of stuff that's held back, and it's held back in that it probably arrives at the point of the story you would expect it to arrive in a movie. But there's mm-hmm. no, like, oh, we've, we've got an hour, you know, we've got a first hour episode, we must explain everything. I think it is making the most of being on Netflix. It's not like on network TV where you have to sort of trick people into staying, into giving their attention. Like sort of. It also doesn't have act breaks for that same reason. Right? Yeah, they can they can just be a lot less formulaic about how they structure the episode and the show in general. So we're all pretty positive. The one slight issue that I'm having is that eight episodes in, I am so drawn to Vincent D'Onofrio's Wilson Fisk. I think Charlie Cox is good, but there is one guy that I am just gravitating towards every time he's on screen. And I'm kind of rooting for the kingpin at this point, which is <laughs> which might be a problem. I don't know, but I think Marvel have got themselves something very special in Vincent D'Onofrio. Um, that's strong, a strong opinion, but I'm looking forward to seeing it for that reason then. Yeah, it's like we haven't got to him yet, so... <laughs> uh, but maybe we'll get to Daredevil again in the future, once we've yeah, all watched the we, entire season. All seen it. Okay, let's move on now to our second piece of news. This is uh, on a tangent to one of James's favourite superhero topics. Marvel and ABC have announced that they are developing an Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. spin-off show. Hang on a second. Uh, 
<laughs> okay. Um, so, so they haven't announced what the concept is yet, but the article went to pains to say that it's not expected to have a backdoor pilot, but that the concept for, for the S.H.I.E.L.D. spin-off should become clear based on plot elements that are in the back half of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 2. I was going to say, do you know what they're talking about with that? Um, no. I mean, I'm st- I haven't watched any episodes of S.H.I.E.L.D. since we last discussed it. I'm aware there is kind of a, a plotline running through the season. There is there is also almost like a splinter group forming within S.H.I.E.L.D. But then there's also the Inhumans stuff. And, th- and then they haven't actually even said whether the potential spin-off would be a, you know, a new 22-episode season next year whether it would air in mid-season like Agent Carter or whether it would just flat out replace Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. James what what do you actually think the content of the series is going to be? Uh, I think it's going to go one of two ways it will either be a spin-off about Inhumans if I had to put money on it I would say they were considering a, a Mockingbird and or Hunter spin-off because I think Mockingbird who well Bobby has you know, she was one of the few things about Series 2 that really landed quickly and sort of... It's Adrian Palicki, who is pretty Yeah, great, like, you can imagine her said. on screen with, like, you know, Hawkeye and Black Widow and stuff. Like, she's got the presence of an Avenger. So I think she could lead the series. And Lance Hunter has just been... Of Series 2, he's the, the one character who I really sort of connected with he should have been in the series from the start like he's got charisma and you know humor and just everything that the rest of the cast lacks and the fact that he's got a strong relationship with bobby makes me think you could put those two in a sort of mr and mrs smith type series of their own and now do you do you think that it would just be like that that they just take a couple of characters or do you think that it could be you know mockingbird going off and setting up a new team like I've, I've heard secret avengers tossed around as a potential idea i don't think they'll just do agents of shield again so if you call it secret avengers you know you still it, you can't really hide the fact that it's just a group of shield agents you know palling around i wonder whether they would want to just spin off another another show from shield which you know kind of does adequate numbers for abc but doesn't do like the blockbuster numbers that they were hoping a marvel show would have done to the point that agents of shield without this would probably be heading towards renewal now but it's not guaranteed it's still on the bubble to an extent i just i'm just thinking that some of the moments where agents of shield pops is when they are allowed to fully fully embrace the marvel cinematic universe and characters from the marvel cinematic universe turn up and given that we we expect age of ultron to splinter off casts just how great would it be if they went okay kobe smolders is coming back to tv she is going to head up one team that is kind of the iron man team which is you know pro registration team and they're going to go around doing their business and that's a bunch of characters who you root for but there is also another side of characters maybe headed up by colson who is doing caps work and that they're constantly coming to loggerheads but you're rooting for both of them because you know and like all the characters yeah i mean i think it'd be good if they did that i just think i think marvel tries to make the tv series look more integral to the universe than it is and i think realistically they're not going to jeopardize their big franchises to sell a smaller one Okay, let's move on to our final piece of comic book movie news. And this is, well, it's a couple of complimentary pieces of news around the DC Cinematic Universe. James Wan, who has recently experienced huge success as the director of Furious 7, he is apparently in talks to direct the forthcoming Aquaman movie. So not James Cameron, unfortunately, but he would have a stellar opening weekend if it was him. Um, And then over on The Flash, uh, The Flash movie... Uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller 
the brains behind the Lego movie, Claudia Chance and Meatballs, 21 Jump Street, they've been hired to work on a treatment of the script uh, for Warner Brothers. So not confirmed whether they're actually going to write the final scripts or direct, but they are certainly working on something for them. What do you guys think about these two pieces of news? The Lord and Miller on The Flash is obviously, when it was first mooted that they might be involved, and I think it was being talked about them possibly directing, it seemed kind of pointless to have them just direct someone else's script. Like, if, you, if you're going to get Lord and Miller in, get them to write it. Um, because, yeah, I, I love them as much as you do. You know, pretty much everything I've seen from them, I think, has been great. I think they they actually find a way to put a distinctive take on something. I think I think they think about things and take them apart in a clever way. So the idea of having them on the Flash, I'm kind of torn about because if you were to disregard everything else that's going on with DC, if you said look at DC's slate of characters, which character could stand to have someone like Lord and Miller who who have that approach to things put on it, the Flash would be pretty much perfect. I would say maybe only Flash or Green Lantern are the ones that could really stand to have a sort of a fresh you know an an interesting take on on their powers or or their style you know their their abilities and that kind of thing dc are certainly you know trying to do this properly i think in terms of the talent they're hiring i mean they're kind of people that like if marvel had announced that they'd hired lord and miller to do an inhumans movie i would have been over the moon and i have no interest in the inhumans on a conceptual level anyway or if they said okay we've got james one in and he is going to come and do a black panther movie i'd have gone oh great yeah, shall we shall we move on, guys? Shall we shall we move on to our main discussion? Mm-hmm. So this week, uh, our spoiler-filled discussion is going to be of Superman. But before we dive in, let's listen to the original trailer for the movie. In one tragic moment, that world was destroyed. But there was one survivor. Because of the wisdom and compassion of Jor-El, because he knew the human race had the capacity for goodness, he set us his only son. His name is Kal-El. He will call himself Clark Kent. But the world will know him as Superman. This year, Superman brings you the gift of flight. Superman, the movie. Okay, so that was the trailer for Richard Donner's 1978 movie, Superman. Um, This movie has a kind of overwhelmingly complicated production, and that production kind of ties into Superman 2 being very complicated, and even Superman Returns being very complicated, and then there being another version of Superman 2. But I think we'll kind of address that as we work our way through the discussion. I'm sure Seb will have a lot to say about this. Um, <laughs> Seb, should we should we spoil this right up? This is your favourite ever superhero movie. Is that true? Yeah, with caveats that I'm sure that we'll get to, and I think I'll, I'll find myself not being able to agree with what I'm sure are several fairly obvious criticisms that you both have <laughs> of it. But even with those criticisms and caveats, 
yeah, nothing touches this as far as superhero movies go for me. Yeah. It, it's just... It's it's the most perfect representation of a particular superhero character that there's been on screen. It's just Christopher Reeve's Superman just so overpowers everything else. Let's begin with the very start. So strangely, this movie starts off with the kind of, you know, the proscenium arch and the curtains being drawn back on a cinema screen. And you're like, huh, OK, is, why, why are we doing this? And then the cinema screen starts projecting and we're looking at a copy of Action Comics on the screen. Just to interject, by the way, that's not even an actual issue of Action Comics. That's, <laughs> okay. that's, so they didn't even use Action Comics 1 or any actual Superman cover. That's just an image that they have created. Like, it's right. an image from the comics, but they've mocked up together a cover for no apparent reason there. And then we, we flick into the comic book, and it closes in on a, on a still of the Daily Planet, yeah. and it moves into the Daily Planet, and then it becomes actual, like, movie footage but still in black and white and then we zoom up into the air and then we take a journey through space and we get the opening titles but why the fuck is all that comic and movie screen stuff there at the start is it just an affectation bearing in mind that this is the first proper comic book movie not i mean we've had batman 66 but that's such a completely different beast altogether uh not that i'm saying it's necessarily any worse because i love batman 66 but this is doing a superhero adaptation in the in the post star wars age and for that reason it's like this is year zero this is where this all starts and so the idea of merging together the comic book and the cinema screen in the way that it does i think is lovely what i don't understand is why this opening bit of narration is all about the daily planet it's what what does the daily planet have to do with anything that we see on screen for the next 45 minutes Mm. admittedly the daily planet is when the film kicks into gear and it, it you know it's from the point that clark arrives at the daily planet that i think the film is pretty much not exactly perfect but you know at its best from then till the end oh we're gonna have conversations (laughs) (laughs) i know so then we do pan up into the sky and we suddenly text shoots out of the screen in this like blue neon and the screen is suddenly widescreen and there is you know we're, we're flying through the stars and the font is very star warsy this this movie arrived a year after star wars and so kind of was in production when Star Wars was in cinemas. This is a movie that arrives, what, four years after Jaws and one year after Star Wars, so like it is the first ever superhero movie in the wake of Mm. the advent of blockbuster cinema. And it immediately, as soon as you hear that score and you see those titles, you go, oh, we're in for something big and vast and epic here. I think it sets a good tone, even if it does last for a little bit too long. It does go on for a while, but I I don't mind it going on for a while because you're sitting listening to the John Williams Superman theme for four minutes so Which is great it's so good isn't it's it it's the greatest movie theme ever i know that star wars fans will disagree with me but the superman theme is, is the greatest movie theme what i like about the score is how sort of whimsical it is which is something that modern movie scores especially just tend to be like these kind of orchestral dirges and yet the superman one has a lot of kind of lightness in it it's yeah it's it's a fanfare is the thing it's like it's a heroic fanfare and mm. i think that's that's why it works it's like the music says to you superman's here and everything's going to be all right now okay so five minutes later we get to krypton <laughs> and we meet marlon with brando. some with some more brilliant music by the way the the mm. krypton bit of score i think is fantastic so marlon brando is there he is reading his auto cue and there are some big Krypton. <laughs> Paid four million dollars to read ten minutes of auto <laughs> cue. <laughs> these the, these big faces are projected onto the wall behind and there is a spotlight everything else is black shining down on Zod and his two pals James you sent an email around saying 
why are they here? I thought I was watching Superman 2 for yeah, a minute. Yeah, I, I haven't seen the original Superman since, like, I was a kid, sort of early 90s. And I switched on. I was, like, ten minutes in thinking, have I accidentally put on Superman 2? Like, what is going on? <laughs> Seb, do you want to explain to us the complex production of Superman and why, in fact, Zod is here? Because I... I'd like to get my head around it if I can. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's basically the idea was to shoot the two films back to back with the same writers and same director. So the Zod stuff is at the beginning of the first one so that it can become a plot element, which it obviously does in the second one, and he can be the main villain of the second one. But what happened was after wrapping most of shooting on the first one and a good chunk of shooting for the second one the cell killed the producers fell out with Richard Donner the director and I don't know if Donner quit or was fired but I think he was fired and they brought in Richard Lester to do reshoots and change Superman 2 and give it give a fair bit of it a slightly lighter tone part of the consequence of this was that the end of the first film got changed and also the opening of the second film and obviously quite a lot of the second film is very different but we'll talk about that in detail when we get to covering that Mm. but the, the big effect that it has on the first film is that the first film was supposed to end with one of the two nuclear missiles Superman throws it into space and you see that destroy the Phantom Zone and you see the Kryptonian criminals breaking out and that's the cliffhanger to set up the second one so it doesn't have the spinning around the earth ending because that ending was supposed to come at the end of superman 2 that's what happens basically when or when the kryptonian criminals have caused a load of devastation and killed millions of people he turns back the earth to fix things after he's defeated them in the Donner cut of superman 2 it is the case that the changed ending still happened on donna's watch Yes, yeah, no, it did. It was Donna's decision. After They had made the decision to do the two films back-to-back to start with, but then they weren't 100% sure if Superman was going to be a success. So they decided to drop the cliffhanger element in case it needed to be self-contained, and that's why they pulled the ending forwards. I think I read during the actual filming of the two films back-to-back that basically Donna was taking too long going over budget, so they kind of yeah. said, look, focus on your Superman one yeah. scene. So, so they stopped work on Superman 2. Yeah, and, and, so... and I think they still had like 70 percent of its shot and some of those scenes ended up being reshot by Richard Lester yeah. for Superman 2 so that Richard Lester could be credited as the director the lopping off the freeing the Phantom Zone criminals at the end of the first film means that Zod and Non and Ursa are at the beginning of this film and then are never seen again so if you watch this film in isolation this was going to be my point is yeah, why they didn't they just cut that scene they should have like, cut the that film scene. is already too long yeah, they should have cut that scene and then just had it at the start of Superman 2 as a flashback to before... Yeah, exactly. The like, it's so obvious. I don't understand why it didn't happen. What it does do is at least establish Jor-El's position in Kryptonian society hmm. in advance of his warning of the planet being destroyed. But I don't even think you really need that. And all it really does as well is you have what is... I think an absolutely brilliant scene of Terence Stamp, you know, chewing the scenery and being fantastic and delivering one of the most iconic lines in the entirety of the Superman franchise. <laughs> you get that scene and it's fantastic, but it just makes you wish that he was in the rest of the film. I've got to say, I, I love that scene. I, 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 can, I can totally understand why they didn't get rid of it. It looks stunning. This film was shot by Jeffrey Unsworth, you know, who had worked on 2001. You've got production design by John Barry, who'd worked on again uh, Kubrick's uh, Clockwork Orange 
just some of the behind the scenes talent that they had assembled on this film to make it look like it does is incredible and just going back to the writers as well they had hired Mario Puzo to write the script ended up using very little of it it's kind of widely acknowledged that Tom Mankiewicz had pretty extensively rewritten this film but couldn't get a WGA writer's credit on the film and I'm also looking at the credits for this movie uh, there was a makeup artist who worked on the film called Lewis Lane, which is just amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so, so I I love that in that opening sequence that it's a really beautiful scene with the faces projected up on the wall and the mm. the kind of the hoops spinning around Zod. Okay, so so once we got the Zod trial scene out of the way, we get the whole. I think most people know the general story of Krypton, you know, exploding. Yeah. And, Jor-El sending Kal-El down to Earth and we follow him through space in a spaceship and he kind of it, so that that seems to take a couple of years because when super when Jor- when Kal-El shows up on Earth he is like a toddler yeah a naked toddler there's Superman penis in this movie <laughs> yeah it's a, what, it's a bit of an uncomfortable that? moment that one isn't it <laughs> yeah I was watching this with my girlfriend she went ah yeah, my wife did pretty much the same thing. <laughs> I would, I'd advise anyone not to look at what happened to the baby version of Kal-El in real life. Oh, yeah, part of that supposed Superman curse. Yeah, that's depressing. But so, Kal-El gets to Earth. Uh, he is a new child who can uh, lift up cars. <laughs> and then we pretty much immediately flash to a teenage Clark Kent. Mm-hmm. And teenage Clark Kent's voice was redubbed was, yeah. by Christopher <laughs> Reeve. And teenage Clark Kent is a terrible actor. A really terrible actor, right? <laughs> Especially when it comes to running acting. Yeah, well, and apparently he, like, he like tore some muscles in his legs when he was filming that scene. I, I think it's maybe slightly harsh to judge his performance when his performance is being dubbed, so you can't really... Annoying face, though, hasn't he? He's got an annoying face. I quite, I quite like it. I mean, I remember before I knew that it was Reeve, I remember watching those scenes and thinking, wow, I can't, I can't believe they got someone who looks and sounds so much like Christopher Reeve to play the younger version. He had prosthetics as well, didn't he? <laughs> Did he? Uh, right. Yes, yeah. But in the in that sequence we then you know after he gets home he has a race with his dad and that 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 means that Pa Kent's heart jacks in very quickly you know he doesn't he doesn't have to go back into a hurricane to save a dog or anything like that he just goes oh heart's not working anymore and he's gone but I thought I thought that was genuinely quite a sad moment I thought that it's it's sold really well I think it's great and it's, it's really well done and it's the, the interesting thing about that is that that feels to me like a, like a really integral part of Superman's kind of development and background is he grows up with these loving parents and then one day his dad dies of something that he can do absolutely nothing about. And it's a really key part of the development of Superman that he realises that is sometimes... Which the ending doesn't work. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes people die and he can't do anything about it. Hmm. Uh, and he, you know, he has to come to terms with that. And Glenn Ford is great as Park Kent. Yeah. He is... He, he sells the hell out of it. He only has two or three scenes, but you get the sense of, like... Just this really earnest, lovable mm. guy who kind of was too old to raise a kid, especially a superpowered kid, but did it anyway and yeah. loved him. And, and tried really to- had an important part in making him who he was. The thing about this is that this is original to this film. Okay. Because pre-crisis um, in, in Clark's origin, basically both of his parents die off page as he becomes an adult, and that's the kind of spur for him to 
but the thing is that they, you know, they they both die quite close to one another. And there is a scene in one of the early origin takes of you know his dad on his deathbed telling him that he has to become Superman, basically. Mm. But changing it up so that his mother's still alive, but his dad dies at a particular age, and that's a really kind of key point in his development is is original to the film. And everything we've had up to here in terms of Superman's origin with Krypton and Jor El and arriving in Smallville. Was that all established Superman canon in the comics pre this movie? Um, the the basic the basic beats and the basic points that it hits, yes. But the there are several versions of Krypton, aren't there? Even yeah. even by this point, and and this version of Krypton was 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 new, really. Um, you know, the the movie kind of went its own way with Krypton and what Kryptonian society was like and what the planet was like, and that has informed the comics basically ever since. Um, they, up to this point, Krypton was an incredibly nineteen fifties retro futurist sci fi art deco paradise type place. And, like, people went round on Krypton wearing, like, capes and, like, you know, underpants over their trousers, just like Superman's costume and stuff. Mm. The film kind of changed that and sort of brought in this idea of a kind of sterile scientific society based on logic, which the comics ran with after the, the reboot, which, again, we'll, we will talk about a bit later. Um, the other thing, from just from that Krypton stuff, just a very quick thing that had an influence on the comics, the S symbol being the, the L family crest... Mm. That had never existed in the comics, but in the comics up to that point, the S was an S, and it, and it meant Superman. S for Superman. Yeah. The whole thing with them all having different family crests on their clothes and Jor-El having the S, that was original to the film. And I understand, although I don't know if it's apocryphal, that it was Marlon Brando's idea to do that. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's Marlon Brando's contribution to the Superman mythos. It's a good contribution. It's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> the next section I'm really, really, really interested in, this is a theme that has run through the comic books. Because when you see it on screen, you, you really can't understand how it was ever not a theme for Superman. So Clark Kent, at age 18, decides that he has to leave, he has to go see the world, and led by this crystal, goes up to the Arctic, I presume, and discovers the Fortress of Solitude. And when he gets into the Fortress of Solitude, a, again, Auto-cue Marlon Brando shows up to talk to him um, and collect his money. Um, <laughs> to be fair, I know you say the auto-cue thing because we all, we all know it's true, but he doesn't ever come off like he's reading. No, but it because it's Marlon Brando it's a good and he's amazing. Yeah, yeah he's, he's worth every penny that they spent on him for this. Yeah. He, he gave the film what it needed in that opening half an hour. Well, and that, and it's something that the superhero genre has... Con- you know, you've got this, this movie is headed by Marlon Brando and Gene Hackman, like Oscar winners. And, you know, you see even to this day, Captain America hires a Robert Redford, or the Marvel Universe is still going after Al Pacino for a role. Like, these movies recognise that if you cast an older actor with some clout it you get a certain section of the audience who go oh well if marlon brando's in it it can't be a dumb comic book thing and also higher unknowns is your hero because it's almost the least important part as long as you get the character right you don't need a star in the lead role but yeah so we get so we get to the fortress of solitude and it's then that jor-el basically tells kal-el you know you're gonna you're gonna spend 12 years here learning and then you can, you know, re-enter the world. And it's at that point that you go, oh yeah, this is massively the Jesus story, isn't it? It is Superman as Christ, and that is running through the movie, that he has these, you know, missing years in his 20s where no one knows where he is, and he shows back up in his 30s, 
as kind of someone sent down by his father to protect over these these people on earth he's a 20th century jesus and that that theme i think is something that i i, I mean i assume it was richard donner was is keen to play up every time he gets a chance in this movie is that something that the comics had always done had they always kind of acknowledged that superman was basically jesus when superman was introduced like hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. He was created by two Jewish yeah. uh, creators. <laughs> That's exactly what I was yeah. going to say. So yeah. the Superman story at its inception is Moses, not Jesus. Oh, right, yeah. okay. Like, it's him being sent adrift in, like, a cradle and raised by, by a, you know, different parents in a different society. But, I mean, that's that's most definitely not what Donner is doing here. Donner is yeah, doing I think, Jesus. Yeah, I think Super Jesus is a kind of modern affectation. Like, ev- every time someone revises the myth, they kind of layer on more Jesus elements until you get sort of, you know, Zack Snyder having him do Christ-like poses every 30 seconds. I don't see how you would do a Superman story and not do it. It just seems like the reason you can't you can't see it done any differently is because you're you're viewing it through the lens of you know thirty forty years of versions yeah. which move mm. it closer and closer to being super Christ. The the idea of him being sent specifically to Earth so that he can save and inspire people. I don't believe that had ever been said in the comics before the movie. It was more he's sent to Earth because it's a planet that he'll have a chance of surviving in. Mm. It's a refuge. And, you know, Jarrell realises that he'll have an advantage because he'll be superpowered when he's there. But it's it's essentially, yeah, you know, he's sent to Earth because that's the place that he's going to survive because Krypton isn't going to survive. You know, the line about, um, you know, I've sent them you, my only son, that is completely an invention mm. of the films. And even, I think the Comics have generally resisted folding in the Christ parallels in quite the same way. They do it a bit, but it's not as extensive as it's always been in the movies, Mm. I think. And I love that nod to the bit in the Bible where Mary Magdalene dies and Jesus time travels back to save her. (laughs) 
And it's at this point, you know, kind of at the end of those 12 years, we see Superman for the first time uh, in his costume. Not explain where his costume comes from, but the first scene of him, of Christopher Reeve stood there as Superman, you know, 45, 50 minutes into the movie, flying towards the camera with the John Williams score booming is just, it's, it's, there is just this like palpable sense of awe at so many moments in this film. And I actually think that it's it's more the case in the first half it, with the with the Krypton stuff and him as a child and then him in the Fortress of Solitude. There's so many times where I went, this film feels big. It feels big and important and kind of like breathtaking at moments, even though it doesn't have the kind of, you know, the effects budget that a movie today would have or the, you know, effects capabilities. Um that score and some of the some of Donna's camera work just made me go like, oh, and I think it kind of culminates at that moment where Superman flies towards the camera. It's a great, yeah. it's a great superhero movie moment. I, I I would agree because the thing is obviously the film does divide neatly into those two I would say halves but one's longer than the other yeah. the thing with that first half and up to that point is that everything you say about how it looks and feels like as as a fan of the character and as a fan of the movie I agree with you in that and I think it, it it's kind of treating Superman with the you know appropriate level of gravitas if there is such a thing for you know <laughs> Superman comics but it is slow it really is slow and yeah. so on rewatching, I think the first half suffers because it's so much snappier as soon as it gets to metropolis you see i would argue the opposite that the first half feels slow and deliberate and takes its time to explore its themes and to to not feel the need to rush through anything that it doesn't feel the need to rush through and i i I think that maybe it does actually harm the second half of the movie that we have to rush through a whole load of plot that you kind of you kind of wish that a movie could start with Clark Kent turning up to Metropolis at the start yeah. of a movie and then telling that story because there's not enough time to do that second half there is that and then there's also as I say the reason why that first 45 minutes I think feels so slow is that Christopher Reeve isn't on screen for any of it Mm -hmm. and you know we've already said right up top he is the best thing about the film and as good as it is to see the Superman origin done properly in that way waiting three quarters of an hour to get your best element and and your second best which is Gene Hackman onto the screen is really disappointing well I mean you're talking about best elements there in terms of you know people and characters I mean, as far as I'm concerned, like the production design on Krypton and, and all that interesting, slow, deliberate exploration of theme is very interesting to me as a movie mm. fan in that first 45 minutes. And as much as I love the faces and the people and the performances that are on screen in the second half, it is like a just a breakneck run through plot. I'd rather have the entire first two thirds of the movie exist and then the final act of the movie be a lot shorter um, and give up some of that time to Metropolis. I'm not sure why the film ever leaves Metropolis, to be honest, in the second half. That seems Mm. like a big, big error to me. But we'll get to that. But so, Seb, tell us about Christopher Reeve. He shows up as... Clark Kent and the movie keeps making the references to those lines I've I've heard the words mild mannered in every (laughs) single Superman property that I've watched the interesting thing about think about the the take on on Clark that shows up is that it's actually quite a throwback although he's much more bumbling and nerdy than than George Reeves as Clark Kent was and I I love his uh, you know his performance as Clark Uh, it's little things like the you know the scene in the alley with him catching the bullet um, (laughs) and the fact that he has to say oh I must have just faked 
fainted, you know. And it's yeah, just, just the, yeah. you know, the little smile that he gives and just this superb mixture of confidence and lack of confidence. But I also love that as Clark, he actually tries sincerely to talk the guy out of mugging them. Like, that's not yeah. him pretending to be Clark and talk the guy out of it. That's while he is in Clark mode, he is trying to find a peaceful solution. Yeah. And it is in Clark's personality to try and talk the guy out of it. None of this would be in any way as effective if Reeve wasn't as good at selling the dual role as he is. Let's talk about Lois. I'm not sure why she is introduced as a bad speller. Like, I don't, I don't understand why you would undermine that character from the word go. That's the thing, isn't it? Like, I was saying how one of the things that it's difficult to do in every Superman adaptation is how do you reconcile the fact that this sort of headstrong, intelligent reporter just doesn't see the obvious standing in front of her? A lot of things do that by finding ways to undermine Lois. But I don't, I don't think this film really does that, though. Well, I'm not sure why the spelling thing is in there. Well, that's what I mean. I feel like giving her that sort of weakness is them trying to say, like, oh, she, maybe she's not as good as she thinks mm. she is. The Superman dual identity and the people not recognising he's Clark Kent and Superman. I don't think I've ever seen a version of Superman where Clark Kent and Superman do not look like the same bloke, except with his hair slicked back and glasses. <laughs> It's just, it's just a leap of logic that you have to take with but the that, movie. But the thing is, that's because we're looking at it from a perspective of we know that Superman has a secret identity. And so we would think, wouldn't people be constantly looking at Clark? The comics in the 80s with John Byrne's relaunch did this brilliantly to basically say, why does any... Superman doesn't wear a mask. Batman wears a mask, so people would be constantly trying to find out Batman's secret identity. Superman doesn't wear a mask. So 90% of people would just assume that Superman spends 100% of his life as superman and has a home somewhere well that's the thing like i can believe people wouldn't notice from afar but lois literally like within one scene she goes from standing next to superman to standing next to clark kent and when you're that close but to they someone, look completely like different and again that's because of christopher reeve but they don't say they don't they never that's do the, no, there like is, the man reeve with glasses. <laughs> there is a scene where he shifts between the two of them and he looks like two different people when he does it there's an amazing scene in Lois and Clark where Lo- where Superman as Superman rings up Perry on the- Perry White on the phone and he goes oh Clark and Superman <laughs> goes um uh, yeah yeah it's me it's Clark because he doesn't really cha- I mean he changes his voice to become more yeah. bumbling but he doesn't change like the but Reeve does Reeve changes his, his whole body language the shape of his shoulders his height and mm. his voice and as I say it's it's that scene it's a bit further on than where we're up to but when he takes off his glasses and he's about to tell Lois and then he changes his yeah. mind that scene is for me the best moment in any of the superman films um reeve is fantastic at doing that at, but as a as a logic leap in every in every superman yeah. property i think it's something that you have to accept as an audience just go okay so that's yeah the well that's the thing quote. let's not let's not think about it it's it's willing much. suspension of disbelief because the alternative is either a superman wears a mask which means he's not superman or b mm. you don't have clark kent and if you, and superman stories without clark kent are not worth doing because clark kent is more interesting than superman so you have to sacrifice that slight suspension of disbelief in order to be able to get out of superman what is a classic part of the mythos see i think the comp- the compromise is have lois find out early on because she's the character who suffers the most from not noticing the connection so if you if you put that up front like all the concerns kind of fade away but it took them 50 years to get to doing that in the comics so that's the problem quite (laughs) what do you think of margot kidder as lois lane yeah i think she's great 
Yeah, she's got chemistry with Christopher mm. Reeve, hasn't she? And that, like, that's that's the big thing that you have to have, and probably what Man of Steel lacks. The scene where Lois is flying through the uh, with oh, Superman, the, the bit is... that even I skip. <laughs> but in terms of the, in terms of those two characters and that, it, it goes on for a bit. But again, I think you get that sense of the awe of Superman, and you get the you get the idea that these two characters work really well together. It comes after that interview on the rooftop, which is. She's kind of flirting with Superman and kind of in awe of him. There's the conversation about the underwear. It's got the it's got like it's got that fizzle of sexual chemistry. Yeah, see I think I think that scene is brilliant and really kind of nails the dynamic between the two of them. And then it is immediately followed by the pointless flying scene and the can you read my mind bit, which as I say, I think this is the best superhero film ever, and I skip that scene because I hate it so much. What I don't like about the scene of them flying around together is when you hear Lois Lane's thoughts. Yeah, that's the bit. That's the like she's supposed to be a good writer <laughs> and yet she's sort of imagining yeah. this really Teenage awful poetry. poetry in her head. Yeah. But that's the thing, it's like the the two scenes that bookend that, you know, the the interview scene and then him showing up as Clark to me are like just such brilliant scenes at getting that three-way dynamic across i wanted more of that though i really wanted more of that i wanted more of that in metropolis i wanted more of clark and lois maybe together yeah that would be nice yeah Mm -hmm. but you get this in the second film well that's not this film is it (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing you're you're saying that you want something that does exist later on i feel like that relationship should be the core of any superman introductory film you know what's this film really it's a really extended retelling of you know the origin point like there's not an actual story to it is there like there's just a retelling of the origin it's a lot of origin with a very brief james bond villain (laughs) plot thrown in yeah and let's get to that so we haven't even talked about gene hackman who i agree seb is very very good he's gene hackman he's amazing he's lex luthor uh everyone says luthor and especially because he's surrounded by uh ned Beatty's otis and valerie perrine's eve teshmaker, teshmaker. and they are fucking awful no. characters like horrible <laughs> horrible characters that have no business being in this movie i like the idea that lex luthor surrounds himself with idiots because he makes, makes himself feel smart feel good <laughs> Yeah. I think it's all right. I mean it's it is a sign of the sort of the comic relief that would that would infect the films as they go on, but I think you need Otis there because you can't have it just be Lex and Miss Teshmacher. No, you don't have to have either of them there. You... Well, then who's he going to talk to? No, you can have Lex Luthor with other characters who aren't Otis and Eve, who are terrible. I mean, they are they are liabilities to his operation at every No, turn. I think Miss Teshmacher's great. Otis nearly messes up the entire nuclear He nearly warhead. kills him as well. <laughs> he nearly kills him. And then Eve is the one person who destroys it all by just going, why Lex Luthor says, oh yeah, I'm, I'm exploding. I'm exploding the place where your mum is. Lex Luthor is... He's too vain to, to notice exactly. that that might be a problem. Like, he underestimates mm. everything. Lex brings about his own downfall because he assumes that she will care as little as he does that he's about to blow up her mum. And he gives what is one of my favourite moments from him in the entire film, which is when she says, my mother lives in Hackensack, and he just looks at his watch and shrugs and walks off. I think Gene Hackman is great, and I like his Lex Luthor, but I think it's more that stuff like that, yeah, while, while you, you say that, yeah, it is him, underestimating everyone around him and a you know sign of his own hubris it is it's also emblematic of everything about that strand of the plot about the villain strand of the plot about the warheads blowing up the san andreas fault it's so rushed and the plot is so convenient and like i say it is very james bondy in the way that 
Gene Hackman invites Superman to him. And I like I like the idea that he's try that he specifically needs to get Superman out of the way. He identifies that is a threat that could thwart his plan, so he needs to get him out of the way. But the whole explaining everything to him, telling him exactly exactly where the warheads are going, putting the kryptonite around his neck, putting him in the water, and then just walking away <laughs> to another room and thinking, "Well, that's done then." That, but that scene where where they confront each other probably emphasises one of the biggest problems with these films in general, which is that there aren't enough scenes with Reeves, Superman, and Hackman's Luther facing off against each other. There's the thing mm-hmm. of you know, oh, um, you know, you can only stop it with the detonator no no don't open up and it's like it's so hackneyed but superman is exactly the kind of character because superman himself is not dishonest would believe Mm -hmm. someone else he would just take that at face value and the fact that luther tricks him into opening a box that's got kryptonite in it is pretty much the purest boiling down of the lex and superman dynamic that you'll find as we get to the so the the kind of the realization of that final act then let's just generally talk about superman as superman in his costume costume i love that i love that first sequence when yes. we're introduced to him where he kind of like he does the whole saving of lois which is a really cool like 70s action scene of yeah and you've got you've got me who's got you which is just the all-time classic easily moment. like the best yeah, yeah like all-time best superhero moment yes yeah. it's great it's really really great and then and then we get kind of like the montage of him going around the city stopping a crook and thwarting some bank robbers i love this the difference in scale like he goes from saving a kitten to saving the president yeah. that is a great summation of like superman will do anything he can to help whenever he can but it's it's so strange isn't it going from these like long deliberate scenes in the first half of the movie to going here's a montage of superman saving yeah. things we'll spend five minutes doing that and explain this is what superman you know this is what he's going to be going around the city doing you get the idea there are a lot of problems in those kind of last 20 minutes or so with all of the stuff in the kind of desert but when the missile has hit and you've got him going around rescuing everyone and building the dam and saving the bus and saving the train and it's just this brilliant sustained sequence of superman going around rescuing people on a much bigger scale than you got on the stuff in metropolis on that first night and it's fantastic and it's like that is that is Superman on screen right there all of those sequences but wouldn't it be great if all that stuff had have happened in Metropolis in a setting and around people we care about rather than mm, yeah maybe but again desert. you've got the second film for that you know the second film is pretty much entirely <laughs> Superman stays in Metropolis for so I don't like the third act of this movie at all um, I don't as soon as Superman well as soon as Superman has finished his conversation with Lex that for me is where yeah I'd, I'd agree with me. that so like when, it really sags after that doesn't it like you're just you're watching a lot of set pieces with no sort of substance it's like he has to do this thing and then he has to do that thing and he has to do that thing and I think it loses the kind of the really iconic visuals that the first half of the film had you know it realises the special effects in 78 of Superman flying around doing this stuff really well and Christopher Reeve looks amazing but there is not much character stuff going on there like I don't care about Jimmy being stood on the top like, of the dam Lois is just in a car for most of it like yeah. <laughs> just sat in a car she's just sat in a car it just seems like it almost does seem like they had this different idea for the third act and just went oh well okay let's just show Superman going around fixing all the earth and then Lois is dead because he gets there just not fast enough see that really bothers me the idea that Superman can fail and then they can just undo it if you're gonna have Superman fail like you have to own that moment and that's why it shouldn't have been Lois it should have been someone else or something else and Superman 
failing to save somebody. It's like, look, I, I managed to stop all of California falling yeah, into the ocean. Yeah, but I didn't save this one person. But to then undo it... I kind of think the other way around, weirdly. I think the problem with that is not that he goes and undoes it, because by undoing it, he's using his powers to have not failed. I think the problem is the fact that he fails. In a Superman film, there should not be a scene where someone dies because Superman hasn't managed to save them in time. But I mean, I, I almost think that is important to introduce to a Superman film, because every movie you watch with a great hero, with a great kick-ass hero, it's not interesting to watch a man who can do everything and is infallible and so I want to I want to see that Superman like even if it's just time wise like Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor realises that he can't be in two places at once and he can save as much as he can save but he's never but that's not Superman everywhere. and the thing is like if, if that's a problem that you have with Superman as a character then that's a problem you have with Superman as a character and that's why people say Superman no, but that's, is boring but that's, that's, but to that's me, movies um, you know the point is that there are other characters who don't always manage to save people and the point about Superman is that his number one raison d'etre is that he rescues people and the thing is people say like oh it's not that interesting to know that he's you know that he's always going to succeed or whatever or that, he, that he's indestructible but that's not the point because it's like you could watch a James Bond film right James Bond is not going to die at the end of a James Bond film so where's the jeopardy because he's never going to get killed yeah but you don't need a character to slide. the jeopardy that's that's because the jeopardy no, is but, but, but everywhere with super, else but with superman the jeopardy is still there and the question is how does he do it and how is he going to get out of this you know that he's going to get out of it you know he's going to rescue people the interesting thing is how and i just it just really bugs me when people say and not, not that this is what you've said i'm kind of bringing this on to a, a more general point it bugs me when people say oh superman is indestructible so you can't do interesting stories with him because every hero is indestructible no, because if you yeah. killed them you wouldn't have the stories anymore Okay, I completely agree with what you've just said, but I think that outlines the reason why Superman has to be able to fail. Because you can't hurt Superman himself, but you can have things happen that hurt him emotionally. Yeah. So, like, if he fails to save someone's life, even if he saved hundreds of thousands around that, he's still going to feel that individual failure. And, like, that is how you give, like, conflict to someone who can't be physically hurt and killed. But I think you can have the possibility of that without having it happen, because having it happen changes the tone. But the film, the film removes that possibility by having that time travel ending. And, like I say, that moment where he can't save his dad, that is one of the most powerful moments in the movie because Superman rescues people but he can't save his own father from his own ailing body that's the kind of thing that he can't save people from he learns that there are things that happen that he can't do anything about but if a car falls into a ravine that's something that Superman can stop. If he was 30 years old when his dad died, he could have just zoomed back the clock and given him some heart medication or taken him to the doctor a bit sooner and could have extended his life. And the fact that he literally reverses time to save Lois is... It's one of those universe-breaking moments. It's like the moment at the end of Star Trek Into Darkness when they bring Captain Kirk back from the dead. The problem with the end of Superman is you go, oh, well, so nothing really mattered. He could just zoom time back even further and be stood in the in the military facility when Lex Luthor I don't think it's James as much of a, a problem in like conception as it is in execution the problem is that the film makes it seem like not a very big deal like it doesn't re- seem to take him that much effort we don't really see him being harmed by the possibility he just kind of goes and does it it kind of doesn't help serve the, the, the whole Christ theme that's underrunning it as well you kind of want to end it in this big sacrifice but, the, but that idea that Superman can't 
can't fix everything for a character that's invulnerable for for a movie i think is some is an idea that you have to introduce that superman is all powerful but he can't be everywhere all the time and he can't fix everything but they had kind of introduced that already in the film well that's the thing they introduced the theme but they don't follow it up with any stakes later on yes, they just yeah. say well this is a thing that happens and then they give the wrong they give the wrong ending to that arc by having him undo it I do really like this film, despite the, despite the last the last five, five or ten minutes of conversation. I would almost love to either see what Superman would have looked like if it had been made with just Superman in mind and no, you know, dual production, or what Superman and Superman two together would have looked like if Donna could have made them back to back as he'd intended. I sort of feel like this film is a sort of one editor away from being much better than it is because, like, if they had interspersed the origin throughout the film and got to Metropolis and if they'd got to that stuff quicker, it would be a better film. There's something quite interesting about the Superman films, which is that whether the films are good or bad, like a constant in the Superman films is that the actor playing Superman is pretty much always the best thing about them. Um, like, Reeve is untouchable in terms of his performance, but Routh and Cavill both make great Superman. Mm. And it's really interesting that, you know, they get to be in films that, that have massive flaws. And obviously Reeve is in two pretty bad Superman films as well. But they always seem to get the lead actor right. There isn't a bad screen, with the possible exception of Tom Welling, there isn't a bad screen portrayal of Superman. <laughs> Dean Cain is great, isn't he? But he's not the best thing there. Terry Hatcher is the best thing there. Well, true. But but Dean Cain's still a pretty good suit. For what it is, and for that show, he's great. Okay, let's bring our Superman uh, chat to an end there. But guys, do you want to recommend me some comics that I should be reading based on Superman? Okay, so there's a, there's a pretty obvious place to start with reading Superman comics in the wake of this, although it's a comic that didn't actually come along until about eight years after the film. Superman comics in the kind of late 70s, early 80s. There's some alright stuff in the early 80s, but they were kind of in a bit of a rut. And the approach that the film took was quite different from the comics at the time, and the comics at the time didn't really react to the film in any meaningful way until DC rebooted their continuity in the mid-80s with Crisis on Infinite Earths, which I think we've, we've alluded to before. That was the reboot that happened before I read An- Animal Man, right? That's right, yeah, 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 that happened not long before Animal Man. Uh, so Crisis was in 1985, and in 1986, the, f- the first of the big relaunches that DC did was Superman. And they didn't do it with all the characters, but what they did with Superman was they literally did reboot his entire origin and and everything. So they did a six-part miniseries called The Man of Steel, written and drawn by John Byrne. Um, so Man of Steel is the sort of the starting point for modern day superman so it's a six-part series that goes through and basically does his origin from krypton to his early days in metropolis actually over the six issues it does kind of take place over a period of a good few years because it brings him up to the point where the ongoing series started where he had been operating as superman for about five or six years basically and it kind of you know just hits all the core elements um, but it's it's just great it's i mean it's quite of its time it's it's very mid 80s and you know there i think there are some elements that haven't dated very well but in terms of just the kind of you know the modern approach to superman and the characterization and the art is terrific like i i don't think there are many people who draw superman himself better than john byrne does and as i say it's like you won't find a comic that's more heavily heavily influenced by the movies than this even though it does some things differently great james what have you got for me uh i think seb will agree with me in saying that this is probably the best superman story 
Um, the only reason that I disagree is to take away the word probably. <laughs> okay. Uh, it is by Grant Morrison, who wrote Animal Man, and an artist yep. called Frank Whiteley, who's probably one of the best superhero artists working in the industry. Again, I'd take away probably Again? and one-off. <laughs> Completely valid. It's called All-Star Superman. It's okay. 12 issues long. One, It does a really good version of the Superman's origin, actually, but uh, it's notable for taking only a single page to do it. But essentially, it's one of the few comics which uses the sort of... Christopher Reeve performance as the basis for its version of Superman and Clark Kent like that's something that you don't see on the page as transformatively as you do on the screen and yet Frank Whiteley's artwork does that Um, so that's its sort of tenuous link to the movie but basically it's just a modernisation of Superman which keeps all the the sort of pacifistic and inspirational elements that I think all the best versions of Superman should have and it really it dials them up to an insane degree like it's it's so ideas dense uh, as a as a piece of work almost every issue is self-contained so I would say start with issue one and read as many as you like I think that will probably be all of them okay some some fun Superman to read next week I'm looking forward to these well shall we move on to our final section which is the pitch um, and th- this is going to be really the first time that I ever changed the format of the show a little bit. But forget 30 seconds, because you never listen to me anyway. This is just... <laughs> but try and not go on for hours. Um, <laughs> so you, you are going to have a, an indefined amount of time to <laughs> pitch me an idea based on this concept that I give you now. So imagine that DC and Amazon Prime did a deal similar to the one that Marvel has done with Netflix. What shows would you pitch for the small screen that would complement their cinematic universe in the same way that the Defenders shows are going to do for Marvel. Okay, James, you're up first. Okay, I'm going to take the unusual step of not undermining the format this week. I just want a Robin TV show because movie makers seem intent on ignoring Robin and I think as a character he's so important to the Batman mythos that they should just do him on TV and, you know, have Batman cameos. Uh, It can be any version of Robin. Like, personally, I prefer Tim Drake but that's because it's the only version I've ever really known. But yeah, any version of Robin, if not all three of them, uh, yeah, just have a a street-level show where he's occasionally phoning up Batman to remind you it's in the cinematic universe or whatever. But I I just think that should should exist, especially in a world where they're doing a lot of teen-focused superhero shows. Like, why not a Robin show that Batman appears in once a season? That's interesting. There are rumours that in Suicide Squad that the Joker will still have jason todd's costume um (laughs) and that he will have killed him in the same way in the but it will have happened in the past in the dc cinematic universe so it stands to reason that if there is an established idea of robin in the uh dc cinematic universe that one could show up on screen as well i would support james winning this outright (laughs) if the version of robin in the tv show is tim drake because it would address the fact that in the comics it's been retconned that tim drake was never robin and (laughs) tim drake is the best robin seb What's your pitch? Okay, so I I am going to actually take the Defenders format and actually apply something in exactly the same way. And it will be the Super Buddies, which are a group of characters who, some of whom originally were part of the Justice League International lineup in the late 80s and early 90s, which I haven't got time to go into detail about why, but is one of the best superhero runs ever because it's essentially a superhero comic as a character comedy with a load of kind of B-list heroes plus Batman. Now, obviously, in this TV show, they can't be the Justice League 
because it's tying into the DC Cinematic Universe where there is a proper Justice League. But in the comics, there was a miniseries uh, about 10 years ago where all these guys who had been former members of the Justice League had formed a new attempt at a commercial superhero endeavour calling themselves the Super Buddies. So the four chosen characters or groups of character in order of you know production and broadcast would be we'd start off with the Blue Beetle, uh, who we mentioned in the Watchmen podcast, uh, and who is basically fairly ordinary guy, although has a bit of money, sets himself up as a crime fighter, is a little bit lame, but is a quite good detective and, you know, gets things done in the end while being a little bit rubbish. Series number two would be Booster Gold, our time-travelling hero, uh, who is a guy who is a disgraced football star in the 25th century who is working as a janitor in a superhero museum and steals a time travel, a, t- a time machine and a load of superhero paraphernalia to come back to the 20th, well, it would now be 21st century and be a superhero known as Booster Gold. Uh, and his kind of, he basically has a kind of bromance with Blue Beetle that's one of the best things about the Justice League International series is their constantly sniping relationship. So Blue Beetle would also be a character in Booster Gold. Third, we would have Fire and Ice, who are two characters who were introduced later in the Justice League International run. And the dynamic there is basically one is a hot-tempered Latina fire-powered superheroine and one is a Scandinavian incredibly nice and sweet and lovely ice-powered superheroine. And then finally, Ralph Dibney, the elongated man, and Sue Dibney, his wife, who isn't a superhero but is always a very important part of any story that involves him being with those characters. Uh, And as well as being a superhero, they're kind of amateur detectives as well, so I would focus on that element with those two. So there's your four series, and then bring them all together as the super buddies for a final series. I'm worried they'd bring them all together to do Identity Crisis. (laughs) Well, yes, which would involve the death of Sue Dibney and lots of other unpleasant things, but let's not go there. But do you want us to go there, Seb? That's the question. Your show sounds more like what's going on on The CW uh, in that kind of weird Atom team-up show. I think the other thing is that I would, uh, rather than tying to the DC movies, I would prefer to tie it to Arrow and Flash because Flash could be a member of their just because they could form a Justice League that Flash is also a member of uh, that would work quite well. Well, Seb, so. unfortunately, I think you've undermined your own pitch in that it would be very good, but I don't <laughs> think it's I don't think it's the one that Amazon would go. Yeah, oh, yeah, we're going to do that Fire and Ice show, and then. <laughs> Uh, and then we'll lead towards this story that even the guy who's pitching it isn't sure about. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't, no, no, no. I, I, I wasn't saying I'd lead to identity crisis at all. That was James introducing <laughs> a rogue element that to try and undermine my pitch. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, yeah, so, Seb, as much as I like your idea, I think you're right. It belongs on the CW with Arrow and Flash. <laughs> um, James's idea, I, I can see. I, I could even see Amazon doing a like a street level Robin show. I could see DC wanting that to be the thing that's tied into the universe. I just want Robin to be taken seriously. Is that, is that so much to ask? Um, so yeah, this week I'm going to give the win to James. Yes, because his, I think he stayed closer to the pitch. You both had good ideas, but James has the one that works for Amazon. Do you, do you, any, do you have any idea how long it took to come up with... <laughs> six characters and then come up with descriptions of them because I knew you wouldn't have heard of any of them <laughs> but you also told James at the end of his pitch that it was that it, it was good yeah you, you, you really you undermine <laughs> yourself I, routinely there so I really want no a Robin TV show as well 
So, yeah. <laughs> but that is it for this week. If you're enjoying the show, then please do subscribe. Head to iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. Um, and if you have subscribed, then please leave us a rating or review. The people who leave us those reviews will give you a shout out on our next full episode. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter at cu underscore podcast, or you can send us an e- email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. You can find episodes of the podcast on cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com, on panelbeats.co.uk, and because this is a Film Divider podcast on filmdivider.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. You're all killers. You want to protect the world, but you don't want it to change. There's only one path to peace. Your extinction. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Avengers Age of Ultron. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.